the nation's looming debt crisis and demands for police reform. No agreements, no promises, except we will continue this conversation. The high stakes first meeting between President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy on the nation's debt limit. Then they went through the Rehoboth uh, Beach House uh, and no classified marked documents were found. The FBI searches another one of President Biden's homes. Plus, I don't know when, I don't know how, but we won't stop until we hold you accountable and change the system. Hundreds mourn at the funeral of Tyree Nichols and demand action against brutal police conduct. But passing police reform legislation is once again in doubt. Next. This is Washington Week. Good evening and welcome to Washington Week. This week, for the first time since Kevin McCarthy was elected House Speaker, he and President Biden held a one-on-one -on -one meeting at the White House. The men discussed a long list of priorities, chief among them the ability to pay the nation's debt and avoid a financial crisis. President Biden is sticking to his position that he won't negotiate on raising the debt limit. McCarthy says House Republicans won't take any action without spending cuts. But both McCarthy and the president said they hoped their meeting would set the tone for future talks before the nation is scheduled to default this summer. Let's start treating each other with respect. That's what Kevin and I are going to do. Not a joke. Doesn't mean we're going to agree and fight like hell. But let's treat each other with respect. We both have different perspectives on this, but uh, I thought this was a good meeting. We promised we would continue the conversation. We'll see if we can get there. I think at the end of the day, we can find common ground. Meanwhile, the candidate field for the 2024 Republican presidential primary is starting to take clearer shape. Later this month, former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley is expected to announce she is running for president. She is the first in what is expected to be a long list of challengers for former President Donald Trump. And there was even more news this week. The FBI searched another one of President Biden's properties. This time it was his vacation home in Rehoboth Beach, Delaware. The president's attorney said no additional classified documents were found, but materials related to the time, that's President Biden's time as vice president, were taken by the FBI. Joining me tonight to discuss this and more, Aisha Rasko, host of NPR's Weekend Edition, Sunday and Up First Saturdays. Michael Shear, White House correspondent for The New York Times, Ryan Nobles, congressional correspondent for NBC News, and Susan Page, Washington Bureau Chief for USA Today. Thanks to all of you for being here. So, Michael, I want to come to you. What's your reporting revealed about this meeting between Kevin McCarthy and President Biden? What are they saying behind closed doors about what they possibly accomplished in this meeting? You know, I, I think um, the kind of tone that you saw there in the clips that you played um, was definitely the uh, approach that both sides wanted to start this conversation with, but it won't be where it ends. And I think both sides kind of understand that. The, the closer that the nation's capital gets to a default, to an actual, um, you know, a time when, when you know, the rest of the world sees that the United States government isn't going to pay its, its, its debts, things that it already, you know, that, that, that's, that have already been committed, um, the harder that conversation is going to be. And, and I don't think there was anything, at least in our reporting, that suggested uh, that either President Biden or McCarthy, Speaker McCarthy, um, gave any ground, right? It was, it was sort of, you know, setting a tone, kicking things off in a, in a pleasant way, um, not being, un, you know, un, you know, uh, particularly nasty to each other, 
Um, but, uh, you know, maybe I'm just a cynical reporter, but I think we will get there. We will get to the nasty, and we will get to the angry, and we, and especially when you think about, uh, in, in Speaker McCarthy's case, um, the way in which he is going to be pulled away from compromise by uh, so much of, of the caucus uh, of the conference that he leads, um, it's going to be real difficult to maintain that tone. What you're saying is that they were politely saying, I'm still going to stick to my guns, but thank you for coming in a meeting. Um, Ryan, that brings me to you. I mean, on Capitol Hill, you have Republicans saying, we need to have spending cuts, but former President Trump is saying, don't touch Social Security, don't touch Medicare. What in the world do they actually want to cut? <laughs> is there consensus there? I'd, 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 I'd probably be here talking to you. I'd be breaking this news on our other network, uh, <laughs> if I knew the answer to that question. But to Michael's point, I do think to a certain extent, at least the White House has given a degree of ground, right, by just having this meeting. Uh, Joe Biden had initially said no negotiation around the debt ceiling. They had a conversation in which Kevin McCarthy came back to the Capitol and told us was all about the debt ceiling. So they're at least talking about it. Uh, but to your point, Yamish, the big problem that Republicans have right now is they don't know what to ask for, uh, aside from kind of a very general sense that they want to cut spending. You can't get them uh, to give anything specific. Uh, would you take it from the Pentagon budget? Will you touch any of the entitlement programs? The closest we've come to any kind of substance is, well, we should take back some of this money that's already been allocated uh, through the COVID spending packages that hasn't been spent yet. Well, that doesn't get you anywhere near the type of rollbacks that they are looking for in terms of really having an impact on the overall debt and deficit of the country. So uh, it's going to be very difficult for them to really make an argument here. They do have a leverage point here. I, there's been some talk in Washington that you can't use the debt ceiling as leverage. Have you met Congress? They, they use everything as leverage. Uh, so I don't agree with that. This is a leverage point, but you can't use it unless you can come to the table and ask for something to use that leverage yeah. for. Susan, what do you make of all this, especially when you think about President Biden, his experience in, during the Obama administration with all the, the different negotiating or non-negotiating that happened there? You know, cynicism is almost always the safest default position to take in Washington. But I have to say, I just, I think it's, I think we shouldn't ignore the fact that this was a pretty civil launch to a difficult discussion. And you contrast that with the first meeting that President Trump had with a new speaker of the other party, which left in catastrophe, left with Nancy Pelosi leaving the, the West Wing of the White House wearing that red coat and her sunglasses and uh, eviscerating the president. We didn't have that. It is a sign of our times so that President, president Biden said we, we treated each other with respect not a joke. That tells you, you know, where right. the level of discourse usually is here. The White House did, I think, offer one thing that may be a possible off-ramp, which is to have negotiations about cutting spending and cutting the deficit that are parallel to the talks about the debt ceiling, so that they're not connected, but they happen simultaneously. Yeah, it's very interesting. And Aisha, I keep thinking, if they stick both in their corners, if President Biden says, I refuse to negotiate, and Republicans keep saying, we want spending cuts, if we end up defaulting, is there a political risk there? And if so, for who? Because I wonder when Americans, regular Americans, are not understanding the debt ceiling, but they're seeing their 401ks hurt, are they going to look up and say, well, it's the Democrats, they're the ones in the White House? I mean, well, look, it, there is a huge political risk to having the nation default. I don't know. I, I mean, to me, I feel like there would be blame to go all around. Like, I think there would be, uh, because at this point, you have Americans who are very dissatisfied with government overall. They feel like it does not work for them. This would be an argument in their case that it does not work for them. I do think, though, right now, you do have both sides saying we're going to start out cordial, and they're not going to really negotiate right now because they have time. How hey, you got like 
like several months, that's forever in DC terms. You don't have to start negotiating until like the rubber meets the road, the default is happening in two weeks. That's when you're really gonna get the moving. Let's right now, it's not just do, talking. Let's definitely not do <laughs> anything with a, you know, with plenty of time. Let's not plan for no, it. No, no, you I think take. The, you mean, to Susan's point about how cordial they were in this initial meeting, which I do think is important. And I do think all of us think if it were just Kevin McCarthy and Joe Biden that were making this decision, they probably could come to some consensus. Yeah. Kevin McCarthy's problem is that he really doesn't have control over his own future. Mm -hmm. He has a very hostile uh, right wing to his party that really want to use the debt ceiling as an example. They've threatened it time after time, came close in 2011. This is the time where they truly have the power to make something happen. And so as much as Kevin McCarthy doesn't want to do this, it may not be up to him because he doesn't have control of his conference. You're up on the Hill all the time. Were any of his caucus, any of the Freedom Caucus people, unhappy with him for being so cordial at this first meeting. They haven't, they're holding their fire at this point, right? Uh, they're, they have not come right out and attacked him for that. I think <laughs> they're gonna give him a little bit of breathing room and a little bit of space. They've won a lot of battles with Kevin McCarthy yeah. in the early stages of this. But as we get closer to this, as this deadline approaches, as you point out, that's when you're really gonna start to see things heat up. And, you know, Kevin McCarthy could easily get this done by getting Hakeem Jeffries into a room and he has, you know, there are more Republicans and more Democrats that want to see this done than there are the very small number of conservative Republicans who don't want to see this done. But they have this motion to vacate that they could bring to the floor at any moment that could put a speakership in peril. And Michael, as we think about the the economic realities of this, just today we had a jobs report. Um, unemployment fell to 3.4 percent, lowest since 1969. How is that that economic reality factoring into all of this? I, I mean, I think. The White House was very quick today to seize on that um, uh, jobs report as a, a real evidence, as the president said in some remarks, uh, that the cynics were wrong, that the critics were wrong, that his economic um, plan is working to keep the economy strong. Um, you know, the, the, the challenge for the president is that there are all these sort of uh, storm clouds ahead, right? It could be that the the kind of uh, aggressive job growth that we've had actually triggers the Federal Reserve to continue to raise interest rates, uh, you know, even more aggressively, and that that turns the country sort of flips flips over to a recession. Um, you know, lots of economists disagree. This was sort of an anomalous yeah. kind of um, piece of data. Um, but, you know, the White House, inside the White House, what they're really hoping is that that doesn't happen, job growth continues strong, inflation, which has been moderating a little bit, continues to go down, and whatever the Republican argument is gonna try to be over the next you know, 18 months as, as the presidential election approaches, if the economy is strong, that's gonna make it a lot harder for the Republicans and a lot easier for President uh, Biden, assuming he runs for re-election. And Aisha, Michael brings up the Republicans, and of course, 2024, we saw, we're starting to see a number of people say that they're basically probably going to run. You have Nikki Haley, who's expected to run on February 15th, expected to announce her bid. Larry Hogan might be looking at it, he says. Um, of course, there's Ron DeSantis in Florida. What do you make of sort of this field that's taking shape? What does it tell us about how the person who we used to cover together, Donald Trump, how weak he might be or maybe how much his grip is still there? I mean, it shows that they think that he is weak enough that they will run against him, right? So, I mean, that it certainly shows that they think he has some weaknesses. I, I think the issue for the GOP is that he is strong enough that he can, you know, be a wrecking ball in this primary. He's not going to go quietly. He is going to tear 
everyone down and he's not and he's not gonna walk away like even if he were to lose so I think that is the that is the issue is that he is willing to go as low as he has to go yeah. and he is willing to keep fighting even when it may supposed to be over he's not just gonna go well mm -hmm. let me do what's for the best of the party <laughs> it's for and the best of Ryan, Trump. I want to ask you when you talk about sort of going low there's, of course, what the Republicans are fo focusing on, which is, I think, tied to 2024. You have Ilan Omar getting kicked off the Foreign Relations Committee. You have Hunter Biden, even though he's writing, he's sort of going on the offensive by writing to the DOJ saying, you need to look into this. Tell me a little bit about what you're hearing on the Hill as as it relates to all the things Aisha was just talking about. Well, I mean, first, Aisha makes such a great point, right? He, he just said uh, not too long ago that he won an election that he didn't win. Who's to say he would treat a primary any differently? I think that's got to petrify Republicans right now. Uh, but separately, to your point about how this uh, plays out on Capitol Hill, uh, you know, there are so many of the kind of MAGA talking points that have kind of become the Republican Party platform. And so this idea of, you know, heavy uh, uh, involved investigations specifically tied to Hunter Biden, these are all things that have kind of percolated in the right-wing ecosphere that are now being put into practice by Republicans on Capitol Hill, particularly in the House of Representatives. Mm -hmm. And the big problem for Republicans and for Kevin McCarthy is that because they only have a slim majority in the House, the idea of pushing through any kind of substantive legislation about the policy goals that they have is a fantasy. Yeah. So the only power that they have, and it is an important power, the oversight role that Congress has, this is the only tool they really have. And they could choose that to do true oversight of the Biden administration. And there are things worth investigating, the withdrawal from Afghanistan, yeah. COVID origins, the way COVID payments were made. Those are all things they're doing. If it if that's something that they do and it is legitimate, I think the American people will recognize it. But if it quickly dives into everything goes back to Hunter Biden, yeah. that's where I think they run a serious risk here. And that, I think, will tell us a lot about 2024 and where the power is in the Republican Party. And I, and, and all that is, is such an interesting part in things that we're going to have to cover. I have to also say, we're going to make a little bit of a hard turn here, Susan, because there is, of course, the Chinese balloon. <laughs> I don't know how to have a show on this Friday without talking about this thing. It's floating, hopefully not over D.C. <laughs> from my understanding. But what do you make of the fact that this thing is floating out there? The, the, the Pentagon, I watched the Pentagon briefing. I came away not feeling any better about what the situation is. What do you think about this, the, the, the situation that we're in right now? So a spy balloon from China that they say is a weather balloon and no one in America believes is a weather balloon. Uh, and it is like the comic relief. Uh, I mean, not that it's not serious and we should take it seriously and we want it to bring it down safely and, and all that, but... Really? It's a spy balloon uh, in 2023? I, I, I guess I don't know what to make of it. I guess I'll tell you the one thing you can make of it. U.S. relations with China, which have been fraught, are getting worse. Yeah. And the idea that they, our relations with China could get somewhat better with the, with the trip Secretary of State Biden, uh, Secretary of State Blinken was supposed to make tonight, leave tonight, for China is off indefinitely. And I think we're, we're into more difficult times with China, not easier times, and this balloon is part of that. And it seems like the Biden administration, they don't seem, there's no alarm bells going off at the White House, it sounds like. Uh, no, I mean, to, 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 the, to uh, the broader point about the relationship, I think that there is a, a lot of concern yeah. about that. I think about the balloon itself, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the um, uh, you know, the indication, the best indication yeah. of, of a lack of sort of 
you know, a real crisis, uh, was that they 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 didn't immediately shoot it down. I mean, they or or, or somehow take it down, right? They yeah. they they seem to have assessed that it's not as uh, you know any sort of serious threat either to people. Uh, or to intelligence gathering, and so it, yeah. it's, it sounds like what they want to do is to let the wind kind of blow it offshore, the way <laughs> you know, uh, you know, the, the the weather just kind of like heads from west to east, and eventually it'll it'll depart. Yeah. That's what they're saying at the Pentagon briefing today. That yeah. that so it's that it's not an immediate threat. So that's where we're going to leave it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> meanwhile. Uh, we have to also talk, of course, about the somber part of this week, which is that hundreds of people attended the funeral for Tyree Nichols, a 29-year-old black man who died after being beaten by Memphis police last month. At the service, his mother, Rovon Wells, said she hoped his death wouldn't be in vain. And Vice President Kamala Harris called for legislation to hold police accountable. The only thing that's keeping me going is the fact that I really, truly believe my son was sitting here on an assignment. From God. And I guess now his assignment is done. And he's been taken home. Tyree Nichols should have been safe. We demand that Congress pass the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. Joe Biden will sign it. Still, any meaningful progress toward passing policing reform is an uphill battle. The last effort to pass a policing bill failed in the Senate in 2021. And one of the lead negotiators at the time, Republican Senator Tim Scott, said he hopes this time will be different. We want only the best wearing the badge in this great nation. But politics too often gets in the way of doing what every American knows is common sense. So, Aisha, I want to come to you. What are you hearing from people who, frankly, are most impacted by this? Which I have to say, as African-Americans, they're killed at two and a half times the rate of white people were killed as African-Americans at two and a half times the rate of, of white Americans. Um, is there change? Are people sort of wanting? I know people are wanting change, but people believing that there can be change even on the local level? I, I think that it's really difficult. I think that what I'm hearing when I talk to people is really just exhaustion. Um, Michelle Martin of NPR was down in Memphis, and she talked about how even when she talked to people um, there, that so many of them were saying that they had had run-ins with the Memphis police, or people they knew and loved had had run-ins with the Memphis police that were not good and that were dangerous. And so I think that there is just an issue where, yes, people are concerned about crime. The people affected by crime, and oftentimes it is poor black people, but they are also concerned about police brutality and being beaten and, and having to worry about just getting home. And right now, I don't know that the federal government offers much relief because the idea of Congress being able to act seems very far-fetched at this point. They couldn't do it after George Floyd. It, it's going to be very difficult to do it now in this divided Congress. And so what can happen at the local level? I think there is pressure to try to make some differences. They, you know, disbanded this part of the police force that was able to do this, the Scorpion part. But at the same time, it's like, what is going to happen? What is going to be done? And I don't think we have good answers. And I want to ask you really quickly about just the trauma that you're hearing from black people and, and people in this country who, apart from obviously calls for change, part of that funeral was just 
mourning the loss of someone who should be here to raise his four-year-old child. Yeah, and I mean, the thing of it is, it's like every life has worth, right? Like, so it's like this person, you know, Tyree, he was a skateboarder, he was a father, he was beloved. This was that, his mother, that was his her baby. I know I have a son until forever. He will always be my baby. And she lost him. And I just think there is just a pain in that, that we carry, that is physical, that is meaningful. And I don't think this country fully deals with it because it's just, it's too much. And, yeah. and can I say, I mean, I think I totally agree, and I think that one of the sad things that this reminds us is the disconnect between that kind of trauma and policymaking. It, it used to be sort of the idea that, like, when something traumatic happened, it would trigger action, right? It would trigger politicians, lawmakers, presidents to act. And whether it's 20, you know, little children getting killed in, at Sandy Hook or it's immigrants, you know, you know um, dying crossing the Rio Grande or whether it's, uh, you know, George Floyd or others or Tyree Nichols dying in these police... We're at a point and we're at a paralysis in Washington where even the most traumatic, horrible things that happen aren't enough to trigger political action and, and, and a response. And I think that is what leaves so many Americans so deeply frustrated with, uh, you know, with, with these situations. And a challenge, I think, for President Biden in a State of the Union address next week as yeah. well. There's, we know he's going to talk about police reform. How could he not? But will he have something new to say? Is there some fresh approach? I mean, if, if it couldn't pass, if the, if the George Floyd Act couldn't pass in the wake of his death, Right. And with Democrats controlling both houses of Congress, it's not going to pass now. Is there something else that leadership could do that gets us to a different place in this terrible stalemate? And it's interesting. That, I mean, you talk about sort of this stalemate. Ryan, Jim Jordan surprised me because he said the police, police misconduct is a form of the weaponization of the government, which I was like, how to do a double take. But he also said in the same breath, he doesn't think, he can't think of any law that would stop what happened to Tyree Nichols. So what are you hearing from Republicans? Are they echoing Jim Jordan? Well, define police misconduct, Yamiche. Uh, for Republican like Jim Jordan, it would be the FBI raiding Mar-a-Lago uh, to find classified documents that were inappropriately taken. It would be Capitol Police officers roughing up January 6th protesters, as they're called, as they were storming the Capitol illegally. Uh, that's part of the problem that we have in Washington that Michael points to. People are talking past each other. Mm -hmm. Even these things that we think would be kind of basic knowledge that we all agree upon, a problem like police brutality or law enforcement run amok, uh, diff different Americans have different definitions for those. And particularly in the House of Representatives, those members are speaking specifically only to those constituencies. Uh, so, you know, the second you start talking about police reform, the first thing Republicans do is run tape of Democrats saying defund the police. And the first thing that happens on the other side uh, is that they accuse Republicans of not being serious about this. So uh, it's just like Michael talked about, it's the same conversation we have about guns, it's the same conversation we have about immigration. Everybody just retreats back to the talking points and no one is interested mm -hmm. in that consensus in the middle. You know, there's a big difference between not changing anything and defunding the police, right? Yeah. There is some sort of middle ground there that can be found but it is so elusive because there's no political benefit to it right now. And Aisha, I want to come to this idea that I've been talking to people about, which is, can you even legislate hearts and minds? Of course, people, even civil rights leaders say we need to have new laws, but there's also this sort of lack of humanity that people think they're seeing when they see, frankly, that they do see when they see Tyree Nichols being beaten the way that he was being beaten, especially as he's calling out for his mother in the same way that George Floyd called out for his mother. 
Well, I mean, look, we, we have to use the word, we have to talk about, even though these were black police officers, there is an idea of policing that is rooted in white supremacy. Like, that is something that people make the argument over and over again, and that when you have black bodies, and that they are not, that black people are not valued enough. So if you are in a position of authority, you may feel like you can get away with treating this person like they are not human, versus the way you would treat somebody who's white and in a suit. And that's just a fact. And we have to really deal with that if we are gonna deal with the issues of police police brutality in this country. And that talks, and that gets back to not just funding uh, police reform, it talks about funding education, it talks about funding food programs, you know, to eliminate things like food insecurity and uh, poverty. Uh, those, this is all part of the systemic problems that lead to the situation that we saw in Memphis that lawmakers just don't want to have a serious conversation about. I mean, even as, and we have only have 10 seconds left, even as, we, as Ryan talks about um, education, we think about the fact that the AP African American Studies is being, is being watered down. So it's, it's, it's a tough place to be. It's a tough place to be. And, as, and I think Ryan was exactly right. We are talking past each other. And like, even when it comes to what our history is and what we want to learn, we are not talking the same language. Yeah, yeah. We'll have to leave it there tonight. Thank you all of our panelists. Thank you for your reporting and your insights. And be sure to tune in to PBS News Weekend for the latest on the unprecedented political and humanitarian crisis in Haiti. I'm Yamiche Alcindor. Good night from Washington.